Hi. Hi. Good to see you. My name's Nick, one of the elders here, uh, lead pastor. I'm happy to bring God's word to you uh, almost every week. It's wonderful. Love it. I uh, am going to be doing something a little different today. Um, we've been in Luke, um, as you know, but I wanted to branch off for a moment. Um, something inspired by Luke uh, and what I was looking at last time, but wanted to kind of focus in uh, this morning with you guys. If you need a Bible, we have our ushers around. Maybe we could, yeah, raise hands. We'll get you the Bible. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, keep it. If you want to give it away to someone who doesn't have one, keep it. Uh, yeah, we love we'd love to get the, the Word of God out. And if I haven't met you, um, I would love to meet you after after the service. So. Please stick around. Um, okay. So you can turn to, to Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. But while you're doing that, let me just explain the um, where this kind of sermon came from. Um, Saturday nights for me, uh, before Sunday mornings, are um, at this point in my ministry, kind of hit or miss. I... Sometimes find myself super excited and, 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 and expectant for what God's going to do uh, in the morning, and I, I can't wait. And there are other times where it's like the dark night of my soul, so to speak, where at about 9 p.m. Saturday night, it's when I realize, uh, usually, oh wow, there is no way I'm going to cram into this sermon all that I hope to get in at the beginning. It's when I start going, okay, I don't think these people, these people are nice, but I don't think they want a two-hour sermon. So I'm going to have to start just dissecting what I, what I, what I was so in love with at the beginning. Now I got to cut out this point, and I got to cut out that illustration and that application. And I, it's like a way overshoot. I lie to myself at the beginning of this process thinking, yeah, we're going to cover the whole Bible in, you know, 45 minutes. And then nine o'clock Saturday night, what were you thinking? And I just start cutting and, and, and not cursing, but, you know, cringing. Just, no, oh, no. And um, last week, uh, one of the things that I had to cut, I, the only way I was willing to do it was if I, I made a bargain with myself, saying, okay, it's going to become a sermon of its own in the following week. Uh, because I just, I was really moved by the the image and, and by um, what I was seeing in God's Word. And though I couldn't fit it in last week, I thought, oh, I want to bring it in this week. And it doesn't exactly fit in with the Luke Sermon series, um, so I'm not officially including it in that. But in a sense, it's obviously related because it was in my studying through Luke and, and in Malachi and things that um, this kind of insight came to me. So that is the genesis of this uh, sermon, if you will. And what I want to do is take as, as my point of departure um, Malachi 4, 5 through 6, which if you recall we did look at last week because it shows up in Luke 1, 17. Um, but we're going to go in a different direction with it here this morning. And forgive me again. Uh, if you have, anybody have preschoolers in your home? Anybody? Nobody? Nobody. Am I, I'm, I always forget I'm the youngest guy in the room. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, 
if you recall a time when you had preschoolers, they're sick all the time. So I, believe it or not, I am sick again, and my whole family's sick again. And my my uh, my wife wanted me to tell you guys she's sorry that she she so misses being here. But uh, yeah, we're all we're all uh, spreading the bugs around. It's a lot of, a lot of fun. So, anyways, just want to let you know that. Um, let's read this, Malachi four verses five and six. We'll read. I'll pray. Behold. I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Let's pray, guys. God, there's a threat looming on the horizon in this verse. The whole Old Testament ends with a threat of being struck and given over to destruction. And in many ways, that threat still looms over the world. We know that um, while it was destroyed once in the deluge water back in Noah's day it's being reserved for fire Peter tells us and your wrath is coming God I want to be ready I want everyone in this room I want the day of the Lord the great and awesome day of the Lord not to be a day of of weeping and gnashing of teeth for us, but a day of rejoicing, a day of redemption, a day of reunion, final consummation in relationship with our God and and Father. So Lord, I, I pray that you would use our time together to exalt your Son, to exalt the cross. Because we know there is only one name given under heaven by which men can be saved. And it is the name of Jesus. The only way that day will go well for us is if we are found in him. And so I pray, Jesus, would you come and unite us to yourself by faith through the Holy Spirit. Give me strength. Get me out of the way. Let me be a vessel. Mouthpiece for you. And God, would you give all of us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that are no longer made of stone, but that beat again. Thank you, Lord, for always meeting with us and being faithful, being faithful to speak to us in this place. We're expectant here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, Okay, I have a specific agenda as we approach this this text. Uh, there's a lot of things we could do in Malachi, but I, I assume and I anticipate that we're going to be back in Malachi at times uh, because it does serve as a significant background for the first couple chapters of Luke, in particular for John the Baptist ministry, as we would suppose. Um, 
So I'm, I'm not going to bark up every tree. I'm not going to try to answer every question. I have a specific line that I want to, I want to um, follow down here. Um, and I'll give that to you here up front. I'm, I'm setting my sights this morning, if you see it there in verse 5, on this great and awesome day of the Lord. I'm setting my sights on this great and awesome day of the Lord. And the title, really, of this, of this message serves as kind of the two main points. We're going to look at the day of the Lord, first of all. And then we're going to look at the preemptive strike of the cross. So hopefully you guys have the handout. might be helpful for you to um, see how my thoughts are being organized here. Let's begin with, then... This day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? Before we can do anything uh, with it, we we need to understand, uh, get a sense at least of what in fact it actually is. And what I want to do is give us uh, a definition or try to get an understanding of it in general and then um, flesh it out more specifically as it's found in our text in Malachi, okay? Uh, what we need to know in general about this day of the Lord is that it is, it is a concept not unique to Malachi at all. It actually shows up all over the Old Testament, especially in the prophets. Um, and in different places where it shows up, it kind of has various layers of meaning, okay? But the basic sense is this. The day of the Lord represents a day of God's intervention whereby the wicked are judged and the righteous are redeemed. And above all, God's holy name is vindicated. That's the general sense that you get, right? Uh, that's the basic sense when it shows up, whether, it, whether it's when uh, uh, Babylon came against Israel. That's referred to as the day of the Lord. There's other historical incidents throughout um, the history of Israel that are referred to as the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. The basic sense is what I just gave you. The wicked are judged, the righteous are redeemed, and God's name is vindicated. But there is this ultimate sense that all of these days are pointing towards. The, there, the, all, there's this, this kind of final trajectory of this day of the Lord concept. And I'll, I'll explain that to you here. It's this final day that will come at the end of the ages where all that's wrong, all that's wrong, will be irreversibly done away with. And all that's right will be irreversibly ushered in. So all these little days of the Lord throughout the history of Israel and things are pointing towards the final day of the Lord when all evil done away, all right brought in, and God's glory displayed and upheld. Now, this trajectory of understanding and usage of of the term day of the Lord pushes the New Testament authors to almost explicitly talk about the day of the Lord in this way, this more ultimate sense. In fact, I don't even know if they ever refer to some of the more um, historical day of the Lord moments like uh, judgment upon Israel or judgment upon some of the foreign nations. They're always looking towards this final coming of Christ as the day of the Lord. And I wanted to give you an example of that from um, 2 Peter 3.10. says this, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then 
The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. See, he's talking about the last day. That's the day of the Lord. There is no turning back from that day. It is the last day of the original heavens and earth and the first and everlasting day of the new heavens and new earth. That's the day of the Lord as far as the, the, the Old Testament is, is pointing towards and the New Testament finally uh, sees realized. Okay, If you're united to Christ, then... In this room, if you're united to Christ by faith through the Spirit, His Spirit, that day is the day of your (laughs) consummate redemption. Right? It is the day that all of us in this room, united to Christ, are hoping for. All the stuff you see going wrong in the world, all the stuff you see going wrong in your heart, finally done away with. We will be conformed to His image fully. We don't know yet what we will be, but we know we will be like Him. That's our hope. But, if you're not united to Christ in this faith, through His Spirit this morning, then that day is the day of judgment. I mean, it talks about in in the New Testament how wrath is already abiding on those who are not in Christ. But that wrath will be fully consummated on that day. It will be the day of doom for those who are not in Christ. It's a sober word. I understand that. But this is, uh, this is God's word and this is the truth. Now, particularly, um, how should we understand the day of the Lord from our text in Malachi? Uh, kind of gave you some general parameters there. Now I want to flush it out as we see this, this day of the Lord in Malachi 4, 5, and 6. First thing we noticed, it will be great and awesome. And I wanted to focus in for a moment on that word awesome because I, I, uh, I fear that the way we use it now uh, kind of disguises the meaning that's actually there in the, in the Hebrew. So it's probably not the best translation. Because when we think of awesome, I don't know about you, maybe it's just my generation, and like, was it Ninja Turtles? The kind of, you know, like they're using it like, oh, the pizza was awesome, or oh, that game was awesome, or oh, you know, the set of waves, bro, was awesome. Like that's the kind of way that we use the word today. It's something that's great, something that's good, something that we like. In the Hebrew comes from the word to fear. It comes from the word to fear. Okay? And when I did a translation comparison, the ESV has awesome, but most every other translation has the, the great and, and dreadful day of the Lord. The great and, and, and terrible day of the Lord. So you get this sense here, the way that Malachi is describing this day of the Lord, that the, the it, that it is, it is beyond us. It is like standing in the presence of God and we realize, oh my gosh, whether this day goes good for me or not, I have a feeling, just like John, I'll be on my face before Him. Whether it's a day of judgment or redemption, He is altogether other. There is no one like Him. And when He comes, we are just at His mercy. And that's our only hope. Right? 
So you get this sense, this day of the Lord is not just kind of like, awesome. It's like, wow, he's coming. The God of the universe is here. Now, um, second thing (laughs) that we notice is that it involves his coming and decisive action. Okay, you see that there when it says, lest I come and I strike. So talking about the day of the Lord, he says, when that day comes, I, I very well might come myself and strike. And so what we start to notice is that the day of the Lord is the day that he shows up. The day he comes, he acts. That's what Malachi is showing us in particular. And then finally, we see that it brings with it an ominous threat. This day brings with it an ominous threat. He says, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. A decree of utter destruction. Now, wanted to focus there again for a moment, and forgive me for the word studies, but it, it's helpful, I think, um, at this point. The uh, what they translate there as a decree of utter destruction is actually the word that's used for what 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 Israel is to do to the Canaanites under Joshua as they're moving into the Holy Land to claim it for Yahweh. Do you remember this? They are supposed to devote every living thing and pretty much everything else to destruction. That word is what shows up here. It's crazy. I want you to hear what what um, what God calls Israel to do in Deuteronomy twenty sixteen and seventeen. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. And if that gives you trouble, we can talk about this. It's not genocide, though. You want to know how I know? Because God's going to turn that back on Israel when they're not in right covenant relationship with Him. In fact, that's what's being threatened here. This devoting to destruction, Israel, that you did to the Canaanites, that I did through you as judgment for their sin, now that you are the sinner, the unholy, the unclean thing, that threat looms over you. I might come and strike you as a thing devoted to destruction. That's what Malachi has to say about this day. But there's one last thing. We're told that he will come and he will strike unless they turn. And that's the the last piece we're given in our text regarding this, this day. There's an Elijah figure who now we know from last week, uh, Luke 1, 17, another text is John the Baptist. There's this Elijah figure who's going to go before the Lord and is entrusted with the mission of turning God's people back to him before it's too late, lest I come and I strike the land as a thing devoted to destruction. So there is still this hope. 
But all of this in Malachi simply works out in the details um, what we noted in our broader definition. The same contours remain for this day of the Lord. It is a day when God intervenes, when God comes in judgment for the wicked, whoever they are. Whether it's Israel, Babylon, Assyria, you, me, whoever they are. God comes in judgment for the wicked and redemption for the righteous and vindication ultimately for His holy name. It's what we're seeing in Malachi, just a little bit more specific. Now, at this point, we've got to remember the context of Malachi. Um, we mentioned this last week, but it's important here for where we're headed. Malachi is the last prophet of the Old Testament. And that, that's why it's the last book in our, at least English, Old Testament. And what that means is, at this point, Israel's already gone into exile and already been brought back into the land. They're already, in Malachi's day, back in the land. They've already been restored. They've already rebuilt the temple. They've already rebuilt the walls. But the crazy thing is, their hearts are no different they're dealing with, Malachi is dealing with the same stuff that sent them into Israel or into exile in the first place, dealing with it again here now that they're back restored in the land. And hence, at the end of this book, the last book in our Old Testament, it's this threat of being struck and threat of being destroyed that hangs in the air. And perhaps, this is, This is interesting. Perhaps the most potent expression of Israel's depravity is actually seen in the way they understood this day of the Lord. You would think, you would think, when you hear the great and awesome day of the Lord is coming and all these things, you would think that Israel would dread that day. Oh no, oh no. God is coming and he, he, he exposes the inner workings of my heart. It is not going to go well. You would think they would dread it. You want to know the truth of the matter in Malachi? They are longing for it. They're longing for it. You want to know what this tells us? It says the blindness of sin has penetrated so deep. It's so systemic that they actually think they're right before God. That is a worse place to be than even seeing that you're sinful and and realize that you're walking in sin or something. You don't even realize you're in sin. That's even more dangerous. It's gone even deeper. They thought the day of the Lord would be redemption for them and judgment on their enemies. That's what they thought. It was going to be the day when God would put them at the head of the nations. And, and lift them up. They didn't realize that in their sin and in their rebellion, they had become His enemies. And that that day would not go well for them. Wouldn't. In Malachi 3.1, we see them longing for this day. They say this, Where is the God of justice? Where is the God of justice? They're basically saying, hey, listen, 
We returned from exile. We rebuilt the city and temple. But it's not yet all He said it should be. And it's not all that we deserve it to be. Come and give us justice. Bring in the day of the Lord. Now look at how God answers here in, uh, in uh, verses, I guess it's yeah 3, 1, and 2. <clears throat> oh, I, you know what? Did I say 3, 1? That might have been 2, whatever the last verse is in chapter 2. I'm sorry. But in 3, 1, the answer comes from God. You want justice? Okay. Here we go. And it's basically the same answer. Same, it kind of parallels what we looked at in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 4. He says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek, you want him, he's coming, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, you delight in him. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But, but, who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? He said, you're longing for Me to come. You delight in Me, you think. You want justice from Me and you're sure you'll get it. I will bring justice, but I am telling you, it will fa- you will fall down on the wrong side of it. No one can stand when I show up. It's not going to go well for you. That's what he's saying. The post-exilic Israelites are still in need of learning what the pre-exilic Israelites didn't get. The warning of Malachi here basically is a resounding of the warning that Amos gave some three centuries earlier. Amos 5.18-20. to The imagery here is profound and I want you to hear this. Amos 5, 18-20 says this, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? You're calling out to me like I'm going to save you, like you're the righteous who will be redeemed. He's saying that's like fleeing from, uh, what does he use? Fleeing from a lion to the mouth of a bear. Your sins make you my enemy and you don't even see that. You think, ah, I'm great. God's on my side. Give me justice, God. Where are you? Show up and defend me. I'm telling you now, that day is not going to be light for you. It's going to be darkness. Unless you turn. So Israel thought God would come to save them in Namus from the surrounding nations. Instead, God comes and gives them over to the nations. That's the exile. And that same kind of, of, of day is, is looming on the horizon in Malachi. Okay? You're wanting this day of the Lord. I'm telling you, your hearts have to change. Something has to change or this is not going to go well. 
Now, we have to look at ourselves here for a moment, I think. Um, it's not just Israel that deals with this self-deception problem, is it? This idea that, oh, I'm good. I'm all right. I mean, you do evangelism and you ask people, would you consider yourself a good person? Almost every, you know, 99 out of 100. Yeah, not a perfect person, but, you know, I'm good. I'm good. At the end of the day, I'm not like that guy over there and some of the people I see on the news. I mean, I think I'm going to be all right. We have this this self-righteous propaganda that's constantly turning inside of the, the nature of our flesh. And we're always kind of filling our lives with people who agree with that as well. I'm all right. Yeah, I'm all right. I'm good in myself. Yeah, don't you think? Yeah, I think so. And if you say otherwise, you're out of my inner circle. We want to feel this way. We want to feel right. And we want to surround ourselves with people that tell us what we want to hear. But you want to know what happens. Jesus shows up in the New Testament. And because He loves us and wants this day to go well for us, He tells us what we need to hear about ourselves. He tells us what we need to hear, which is why um, we get in John 9, verse 41. If you were blind you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Did you catch him there? If you started to realize that you're blind, you're starting to see. But as long as you say, I see, I'm great, you are blinder than you know. As long as you think you're right before God in and of yourself, you are dead wrong. And the moment you start to see you're wrong, you are on the way to getting right. See this? This is amazing. This is is why, I mean, I I looked this up this morning. Alcoholics Anonymous get this, this self-deception thing. That's why the first step in the program isn't stop drinking already it's realize that you have a problem realize that it's not all right to drink a six-pack before breakfast you actually have to, to 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 awaken to the fact that that is that that is wrong that that's not right that something's off that you have a problem they realize that we are so prone to lie to ourselves and deceive ourselves that we could be doing these things and not even realize it and think we're fine it's the first step towards christ i need a savior i am blind the day of the lord would not go well Now, Jesus is concerned for us and, and, and He wants that day to go well. And so the, the, the New Testament, the Gospels and things are filled with these warnings. Filled with Him telling us what we desperately need to hear about our own nature and its, and its blinding impact upon us. And there's even this time in the Sermon on the Mount where He brings, it's, he brings up the judgment day and, and talks about these guys that are even there going to be self-deceived. Even there, they're they're at the day of the Lord. And they're still thinking, "Ah, it's going to go well. I can't wait to see the reward He's going to give to me for all that I've done. Matthew 7, 22, 23. 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Self-righteous propaganda to the very last day. He said, you thought you were righteous. I don't even know you. You're just spiraling in sin. And you didn't even see it. I don't want to be there. I don't want to hear those words from Jesus, right? I don't want you to hear those words from Jesus. Praying that God opens our eyes to how blind we are. Isn't that a paradox? It's amazing. Now, we get into the second part of um, this sermon, the preemptive strike of the cross. We have to start asking, what is God going to do? The day of the Lord is coming with judgment for the wicked and redemption for the righteous. But as Paul would later say, Romans 3, 10 to 12, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Not Israel. Not any other nation. Not any seat in this room. No one is righteous. There is no one for whom that day will go well. Day of redemption for the righteous, where are they? It's just day of judgment. It's day of judgment. If God were to come in judgment at this point, like there in Malachi's day, no one would make it out alive. The house of heaven would be empty. In its halls, you could hear a pin drop. What's God going to do? Now we know from our text in last week that he's going to send John. And John's going to go before Jesus. And Jesus is going to do the most amazing work in turning us finally and fully to the Father at the cross. Reconciliation, reunion, all of that. We're going to head towards that same glorious pinnacle. I mean, there's no other, there's no other place to head in sermons, in a message as we study God's than to the cross. No other way. If you're wondering, I wonder what Dick's going to talk about this week. The cross. The cross. Okay? The gospel. I'm just getting up to that pinnacle from a different trail this morning. And I'm taking as my trailhead this day of the Lord from Malachi 4.5. I want to go up that trail to get up to the same pinnacle we're always going to get to, Calvary and Christ's cross. Let me take a drink here before I lose my voice. So we've already mentioned that the day of the Lord is spoken of all over the Old Testament prophets, right? But, as far as I could tell, I'm I'm almost positive there is no other place in the Old Testament 
where this day of the Lord is given the same qualifiers, the same modifiers, great and awesome. There's only one other place, I should say, and that is in Joel. Joel, um, it seems to me, is speaking of the same day that Malachi is. And I think Joel, nobody knows exactly the the date of, of his ministry in that book, but it would seem that Malachi... As he's using this great and awesome day of the Lord language, he's borrowing it, he's riffing on it from Joel. They're talking about the same day, the same coming, impending day of the Lord, but they're just using different language to do it. And I want to uh, go to Joel for a moment so you can see this, because it's going to help us as as we move into the New Testament. Uh, For Malachi, this day is described as God striking and destroying. But for Joel, it's God tearing the very fabric of creation, as it were. And it's it's this this day is is given these kind of cosmic parameters. Let's read this. This is Joel 2, 30 to 32. It says this, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Blood and fire, and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. We have here basically the same outline that we were given in our text in Malachi. This day is going to be great and awesome, and it's a day of judgment, unless we turn in some way to God. But he starts using this cosmic language here. And it's interesting because we could draw a direct line at this point from Joel to Revelation 6. We'll get there, Lord willing. You could draw a direct line. Revelation 6, talking about the end of the world and the, the, the time that this day finally arrives for all of us and the sun turns black and the moon to blood and all these things occur. But there is something, there is something that happens in between Malachi and Joel's oracles and Revelation 6 that changes everything about that coming day. Now we're coming to the stuff I've been so jealous to share with you. We're given an indication, I believe, in the gospel accounts of the crucifixion of Christ. That this day, which still looms out on the horizon for us, was brought in early for Jesus. It's as if, it's as if God, aware that no one will be able to stand before Him, none are righteous, not willing to condemn us, delays the day of the Lord for us, extending the period of grace by bringing it in early, by bringing in the day of the Lord early for His Son. Stick with me here. 
This is where the title of the message starts to make sense. The day of the Lord and the preemptive strike of the cross. The preemptive strike of the cross. This is, this is language of war here that I am using. What is preemptive strike? What is that? It's when in war, you want to take your enemy out before they get you, right? Preemptive. I want to beat them to the punch. I want to knock them off balance and then make a final end of them. That's what a preemptive strike is in war, right? Here's the most amazing thing about the preemptive strike of the cross. It's not a strike of wrath, but a strike of grace. And it's not a strike against enemies, but rather a strike against His Son for the sake of His enemies. Do you understand this? If He were to come in the fullness of His glory, we would all drop down to hell like that. But He comes with a preemptive strike at the cross on His Son. It's grace for us, but wrath fell upon Him. So that this strike would be not against His enemies, but for them. You remember this, Romans 5.8, God shows His love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. The preemptive strike of the cross does knock His enemies off balance. It does take us off guard. I didn't see that coming. But it doesn't knock us down to destruction. It knocks us onto our knees in adoration. How could God do that for me, His enemy? That is the preemptive strike of the cross. The Son of Man was interposed. He was put in between. Put in between this coming day of the Lord and us. He was interposed at the overlap of the ages to undergo... The end on our behalf. Are you following me here? The last day judgment intruded into human history in 33 AD at Calvary's Hill. What was coming for us came first for Him. The wrath of God stored up against my sin, man's sin, for the last day was preemptively poured out upon Him at the cross. The great white throne judgment of Revelation 20 comes in for Christ, Matthew 27. People with me here? We're talking... I was going to give you a big theological word. I won't do it. I want you to see. Turn to Matthew 27. Verses 45. 45 is where we'll start. I want you to see the crucifixion as intrusion. Intrusion of the last day judgment 
coming into historical moment there, 33 AD or thereabouts, on the cross of Christ. That that day is descending upon Jesus early so that when we get to that day, it will go right, go well, be glorious, a day of redemption for us sinners. I think that's the meaning of the cosmic language that surrounds the cross. As described for us in Matthew 27, we pick it up verse 45. There's this stuff from Joel, these ideas from Joel and Malachi that are coming in at Jesus here. Okay, check this out. Verse 45 will start. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. From the sixth hour, noon, the brightest time of the day, to the ninth hour, which, interestingly enough, time of the evening sacrifice, which I've been just... It's amazing to see that. We looked at that in Luke, and there it is again. Time of the evening sacrifice is the time He dies on the cross. But there's darkness. You think that that detail is insignificant? It's not. Cosmic stuff is happening. There's this kind of upheaval in the world as the Son of God is on the cross. Darkness, the darkness of the day of the Lord descends upon Him there. We keep reading. As the moon would also be turned to blood... So Christ, who John describes as the light shining in the darkness, and in in the new heavens and new earth, he's kind of juxtaposed with the moon, actually. So Christ turns red with blood. And then we look at verse 46 there. This light momentarily goes out. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then in verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And then we read in verse 51, the earth shook and the rocks were split. There's this, there's this, there's this, I don't know how else to say it. The, The creation is being ripped apart at this point. You've got the sky going dark. You've got the earth shaking as the Son of Man Himself is being ripped. All of the stuff happening in the physical world is just a parable, a picture of what's really happening inside the Son of Man. He is undergoing the final day of judgment, the day of the Lord, for us at this point. That's the point of the cries, the wrath stored up for us coming in early upon Him. Here's what Malachi was talking about, of this being struck and this being treated as a thing devoted to destruction. That's the cross. That's what's happening to Jesus. This is how we get back to God. This is how that day goes well for us. It came early for Him and He took it all. He took it all. But we're not left in the darkness and blood 
As we keep reading, verse 52, Matthew 27, we come to this strange scene at the end. The tombs, says, also were opened. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now you got to ask, what in the world is that? Have you ever noticed this detail? <laughs> There's destruction going on and we see it. This final day of judgment is coming in for Christ. And that is true. But you want to know something else? Something else starts to intrude at this moment. The great resurrection that's going to take place at the end of the age starts kind of being foreshadowed. It's like, it's like God can't keep the life contained as it's exploding from this moment. And so now people are being resurrected. Don't ask me what's going on. It messes up our end time, you know, timetables. But it's as if to say the stuff from the end, the judgment and the redemption that's coming at the end, is streaming back in historically early for Christ and just judgment, resurrection, life, all that stuff exploding. And the critical piece in all of this is that little prepositional phrase in verse 53, after His resurrection. Okay? Matthew, he can't just stick with the crucifixion here, and he actually brings in what's going to happen later. He he can't keep from getting to where all this is going. Jesus isn't just going to stay dead, you guys. I'm just going to get that in here. (laughs) As I'm recording the cross, he's not going to stay dead. After his resurrection, we will be raised with him. That's what he's trying to say. There's this life that starts to erupt. And it's not because we're great. It's because Jesus underwent the final judgment. God's wrath for my sin. But He also experienced in Himself, because of His innocence, because of His righteousness, because of His infinite being, drank down hell to the last drop and diffused it. Turned that lake of fire into a river of life for us. And so he was raised from the dead, redeemed, not just judged, but redeemed. The day of the Lord comes for him. He is redeemed. He's the firstborn from the dead, the first fruits of that great harvest that's to come. And as he rises up, not guilty, righteous, never to die again, so too now by his Spirit. We are free in Him. We are righteous in Him. It is as if, you guys, this is, this is what's so crazy about this. This is why I want you to see the crucifixion as intrusion. It's as if that day already happened, not just for Him, but for all who are in Him. This is the ground of our freedom. This is the ground of our new life, you guys. You, I don't know how, how you feel about Jesus and your assurance and all this other sort of stuff, but I am telling you, He already died for you. He already underwent the last day judgment so that when you get there, it's just life and celebration and joy. It's done. Because He did it. And we enter into that new life with Him. Listen to this, Hebrews 9, 
26 to 28. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. God's judgment on sin has been fully finally dealt with at the cross. That day, the great white throne came in early for Him, and now we walk. We walk. Holy Spirit inside of us being made new with nothing but reunion and rejoicing ahead of us. Marriage supper of the Lamb, right? What do I do? All right. I'll end here with um, Revelation 6. I'll try to do this fast. Because this, this is where in Revelation 6, the language of Joel is picked up again in this day. That yes, there was a preemptive strike at the cross of Christ. Strike of grace. But, but, there still is a day coming of wrath. And we have this opportunity to be reconciled to God because of what Jesus has done. But there are some who reject it. And I want you to see this last scene and this is where we'll close. Revelation 6. The sixth seal is being opened and judgment, the day of the Lord, is descending. Verse 12 of Revelation 6. When He opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. Hear that? The stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And here's the question, who can stand? The great day of wrath has come. Who can stand? That question echoes both Malachi 3.2 and Joel 2.11. Who can endure? Who can stand? Nobody is the implied answer. Nobody. But there's a critical detail. The wrath of the Lord is now the wrath of the Lamb. Did you catch that? The wrath of the Lord anticipated by Malachi and Joel is now being channeled through a lamb. What does that mean? God is slow to anger, abounding in love and kindness. He's not quick. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. He put a lamb forward at the cross. A wrath-bearing substitute. 
the day of the Lord descended upon him first. The rocks and the darkness and the blood. It all came for him first. The Lamb. But these great ones, these generals, these kings, these self-righteous, these rich, these poor, and maybe even, God forbid, some in this room said, no thanks. I'll take my chances. No big deal. I think I'm all right. I like life here. It's going well. They reject the Lamb. And so they're sitting there saying, who can stand? And they're right. No one can stand on their own. But then I want you to see this because their question is answered as we keep reading Revelation 7, 9, and 10. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages, standing. Catch that? Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Clothed in white robes. How would we get that? With palm branches in their hands. Crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. He is the one. The preemptive strike at the cross. He's the only reason when we get there we will be able to stand I want to read to you. I put it on your handout. This is where we'll end. Thanks for being patient. I want to read to you just something I wrote to sum all this up. I know it's wordy. I know I was an English major. I'm sorry. Hopefully some of you find it helpful. It sums all this up. If the day of the Lord is to be understood as the coming cosmic upheaval, and whirlwind of fury. It's as if the first thunderbolt from that approaching lightning storm strikes 33 AD, Golgotha, Jesus Christ. That thunderbolt is a part of the end time storm. It is a part of the great and awesome day of the Lord, but it comes first for Christ. And the world now rests under the ominous shadow of that same black cloud. No one knows when the next bolt is going to strike and the last day descend. It will come like a thief in the night for many. But while this fallen world rests under that cloud, those who have come to Christ have entered with Him into a brand new day. For as He rose from the dead on the first day of the week, the clouds of God's judgment and wrath broke. And the sun of God's affection now shines in full force, not just upon Him, but upon all who are united to Him by His Spirit through faith. All aspects of the day of the Lord converge at the cross of Christ. For there, final judgment befell Him for our sin. And there, redemption was given to Him in His resurrection as the first fruits from the dead. And there, the Father's name was preeminently vindicated. For it is only by means of the cross that God can be both just and the justifier of the ungodly one who has faith in Jesus. Because of the cross, heaven will not be empty or silent. It will be full of people from every tribe, tongue, 
people and nation, and its halls will resound with the chorus of of our praise, all in adoration of the Lamb. So here's the question, where is the Lamb in your life? Because that's all that's going to matter on that day. Don't reject Him, receive Him. He was preemptively struck so that you would be knocked off balance in adoration of Him. It's going to go well for us who trust in Christ. A verdict over yours in my life, not guilty, righteous, child of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the Lamb. We thank you for the sacrifice. We thank you that you brought the day in early for Him. And we're aware now, Lord, that we... We, we walk, we live in the last days. That as the last day came in for Him, it ushers in the last days for us. And so now, God, we pray, help us. Help us to call others to the Lamb. Help us to, to, to be those that, that, that imitate, as it were, your preemptive strikes of grace. And lay our lives down even for our enemies and bless those who persecute us and look for ways to knock people off balance by our love that they would also come to you before that day descends like a thief in the night. If you are trusting in the Lamb, if you've embraced Him with all your heart, what He's done for you on the cross, I'd like for you to stand because I want us to imagine the day we come before the Holy God, the all-consuming fire God that Israel at the base of Mount Sinai would say, we can't even hear His voice. The day we come into His presence because of Jesus, we will be able to stand. So I'd love it if you guys stand as we pray at the end here. Um, and if you're in that place where you're like, I don't even know, I don't, I don't know if I want Jesus, this or that, uh, talk to me after. If, or if you're standing for the first time, talk to me after. Um, I just want you to imagine, I mean, this is what it will be like. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master because of him. Jesus, we are amazed. If it were up to us, the ground beneath us, God, would just shake and give way. But you are, you are the solid rock on which we stand. Jesus, thank you that you took the wrath we deserve. So that you come again, not for judgment, not to deal with sin, but for salvation. God, we give you all the glory and honor and we pray, help us to live still for that day. You have us here as sojourners and exiles that through our good deeds and the way that we love our enemies, others may see and glorify you on the day of visitation. Lord, please equip our church to not only be assured, confident, secure, but to be reckless in their love, preemptive in their strikes of grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.